0: Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, this morning. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. We're going to see the awesome legacy left by the greatest nothing in the entire Bible. And this example uh, comes from one of the greatest uh, examples of faithfulness and devotion. In the entire Bible, as he kind of passes his prime and begins to wane a little bit in his popularity among the people living in Israel. And what we need to understand is that from a human standpoint, it is a difficult place for us to be sometimes as we begin to be eclipsed surpassed or outdone by someone when we've been at the top of our game, when we've been recognized, when we've been uh, the most successful in an area or when God has blessed us in some way, as that begins to pass, that's a very hard thing for us as human beings to hand off that baton to the next generation of of leadership or, or to give them the reins of leadership in some area. And we see this fleshed out uh, within people at a number of levels. It's very common in professional sports. Uh, Jerry Rice will always have been a great receiver for the San Francisco 49ers. Even though he was traded there at the end of his career and played a couple of years for the Oakland Raiders, not a whole lot took place in those last couple of years there. You may be familiar, even if you are not a sports fan, with the name Brett Favre who retired and unretired and retired and unretired and retired and unretired. And is he retired now or unretired? He, I think he's retired again right now, but kinda he broke his consecutive uh, you know, starting streak and kind of ended in scandal this last season, an injury. So doing that, uh, Michael Jordan retired three times from playing basketball at the NBA. You may remember the last time was with the Washington Wizards, but he just wasn't the same MJ as he was you know, back in the day when he was with the Bulls uh, back in the 90s. And yesterday, I was faced with the reality that we all pass our prime and have to deal with that. I, I, I'm really sore today, a lot of ways. My heart's sore because my basketball team lost it. I'm in black today morning. I know you're all's hearts are sore VCU, you know, yesterday as well, it's a tough day for us. My ribs are sore. We came to the Art of Marriage, marriage conference Friday and Saturday. And so Shelly's all like, did you hear that? Did you see what she said? Yeah, I learned that. I had to put her on different sides each day so I could kind of match the soreness, you know, my ribs from, from being there for that but my legs and my feet are so sore. I ran the Martins 10K yesterday. I ran cross country in high school and run just a little bit now for, uh, for, for health purposes. I hurt my foot a couple of weeks ago. I think the thing is when you have all this, you know, uh, huge tight taut muscle kind of pounding on my feet when I was, what? But yeah, I had a foot injury, so I hadn't ran a whole lot because uh, I was trying to get my foot better so to be able to, to run yesterday. And I did finish it, not in a great time, but, but I got through. But I'm in the shoot, and there are 41,000 people that run this race. I mean, and that's in the race. That's not people around, in the race. And so we, I mean, I'm with probably a couple, I don't know, 100,000, whatever, getting ready to go out. And there's two middle school girls in front of me about to run this race. And I know they're middle school girls because their shirt said Holman Middle School on the back of it. And I thought, I'm going to see if I can set a new goal is to beat these middle school girls today. Setting my sights high, all right? So we take off out of the chute, and I get in front of them pretty quick, and I'm doing, doing well. There's people everywhere, and I thought, well, that's good. I got them behind me, you know, hadn't seen them for about two and a half miles. And I look up, and I see these two shirts running up there, Had, you know, cause the, these huge letters on the back of their shirt. I'm like, there they are. I was like, well, if I can keep them in sight, maybe at the end when I give my, you know, my last little burst, I, I, I'll overtake them in, in the finishing chute. Well, about the three mile mark, they stopped to get water. They got them a cup of water, and were drinking. I was like, ha, I got them now. So I kept on running, got a little bit of a lead. Now I'm at about the three and a half mile mark and they go running back out. I was like, oh, there they go again. So sure enough, the four mile mark, they do the same thing. They stop, I run on around them, think, okay, I got a lead. You know, I can can hold on to it now. They pass me again. I was like, okay, the five mile mark, they will stop for water again and I'm gonna kick it for the last 1.2 miles which meant, I don't know what kick it meant at that point. I was just hoping to finish is what I was there. But then they broke apart. One ran ahead and one stayed behind. And I had a decision to make. What am I, who am I going to run with? The fast one or the slow one? So I slowed down a little bit (laughs) and I beat her. I don't know if it counts as a victory or not. It was pretty was pretty demoralizing no matter how you look at it. But you see this issue of of passing our prime and and not being what we used to be or or being where we used to be isn't just something that happens in sports. We see the same thing take place in businesses when a a, a dynamic, uh, you know, great CEO of a company retires or goes elsewhere. Companies have difficult times and transitions of new leaders and and, and new ownership coming in. We see it with schools, uh, colleges and universities. If a principal retires or a superintendent or or a college president, uh, the next person coming in, there there can be some difficult. Difficulties in that. And unfortunately, we observe the same phenomenon in churches. It happens in churches of all sizes and in all denominations. We've seen some very prominent ones, uh, both within the Southern Baptist Convention, but also outside the Southern Baptist Convention, have some difficult times as they transition from one uh, pastor, one senior leader uh, to another. Uh, Some names that you would recognize where churches have had some of these issues Adrian Rogers at his church, Jerry Vines, James Merritt. uh, uh, Bobby Welch, even the Crystal Cathedral, Robert Shuler and some of that transition there had some hiccups, had some rough spots in the road with that. And we see this dynamic play out all over our country as younger leaders begin to take over the reins of leadership in, in the local church and try and decide how they're going to reach people and how they're going to fulfill the Great Commission both now and and five and 10 and 15 and 25 years lead. 25 years into the future, there, there are challenges, there are struggles that we face in this transition of leadership and ch- transition uh, passing the baton from one generation to another. And I think that's why this text this morning is so important for us to study because we see how one of the greatest men in the Bible, John the Baptist, how John the Baptist handed over the mantle and the reins of leadership that he had been given by God himself. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said this of John the Baptist Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist. That is a huge compliment. I mean, you think about the people from our faith and from our our heritage that we see in Scripture. Uh, We teach our children about Abraham and Moses and uh, and King David and King Solomon and Elijah, you know, the prophet, uh, you know, Samuel. We see so many persons that we look to. And Jesus said, of all the men born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. So what would John do? How would he handle it? when it came time for Jesus to step into the spotlight that John himself had been in. John had been teaching and preaching about the one who was to come. But when the one who was to come arrived, how would he handle handing over the reins of leadership? How would he how would he leave his legacy? How would he entrust Christ with all that he had prepared and done for him as he made way for the Messiah who was to come? Well, let's look in John chapter 33. Chapter three, I'm sorry, chapter three, verse twenty-two, where we see where the potential conflict begins to uh, show itself. Verse twenty two says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was because the water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So we see this discussion. There's a little debate that begins to rear its head here because what had happened is John was teaching and preaching a baptism of repentance that you turned away from your sins. You realized that you couldn't work your way into heaven. And so they turned from their sins and were baptized, symbolizing that they were cleansed of their sins. Then they were ready to receive a new heart and a new spirit that God would put into them through the Messiah. We looked at this several weeks ago in Ezekiel 36, this very promise where through Ezekiel, God God said, I will wash you and cleanse you with water and I will put a new heart, a heart of flesh and a new spirit. My spirit, God says, I'll put within you. So John was baptizing for that purpose and the disciples were baptizing for that same purpose as well. Jesus and his disciples that were baptized, symbolizing our cleansing of our sins, ready to receive the new heart and the new spirit that God would give us through Jesus. So here this guy comes and he's asking about this purification that's being cleaned. And he says this. In essence, John's disciples are baptizing for this cleansing. Jesus' disciples are baptizing for this cleansing. Which baptism is better? Oh, it's on now. Yeah, which one's better? I mean, if you're going to get a product, you want the best one, right? Well, which one? Well, if I'm going to go here get tires, go here to get tires, which one's the better place to go? If I'm here to get groceries, which one's the Which is the better baptism? And it starts the wheels turning, and it's all that we needed—this little spark to begin this potential conflict that would that would flame up. So John's disciples go straight to John. All eyes turn to him to see how he's going to respond. And they say, "Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look—he is baptizing, and all are going to him." Now John's disciples are a little bit emotional. They're a little frustrated, a little upset here. And you almost see that that they even kind of put the blame back on John, the one you bore witness about. So you've done this to yourself. You had a great ministry going. People were coming. They were flocking to you. And then you bore witness about this other guy. And now look, everybody is going to him. Now, the only problem was not everybody was going to him because they were still baptizing where where John was. We read that story, but you see our minds begin to kind of embellish this and we make it out to be so much worse than it really is. That's what happens when we kind of begin to wane or people begin to eclipse and surpass us. And so they look to him to see what John is going to say. And John demonstrates several things for us. The first thing he demonstrates, very important thing for us to learn is a right attitude. John had a right attitude. Look at how he responds in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. This is an incredible picture of godliness and humility on John's part. John took no pride in himself and what God had done within him, uh, even though he was at the peak of his popularity. You know, people had called John, they said, John is Elijah. Elijah has returned to prepare the way for the Messiah. They equated him with Elijah. Now that's good company to have your name associated with. People were calling John that. Herod had investigated John. He had heard his teachings. He had heard about his ministry. King Herod, the the, the prominent political leader uh, in the country, had gone and wanted to find out more about this John the Baptist. Yet John understood, and and I say this with quotation marks because he would be appalled for me to use uh, these words. But John knew that any success or popularity or fame that he had enjoyed were all given to him by God. Everything that had happened in his life, in his ministry, in his teachings, in any blessing that has come his way, he knew that that was a gift from God. And he also knew that if that went away, then God was still in control that God was the one who had taken that away. If God had given it to him, he did nothing on his own, then God could take it away if God so desired to do that. And this shows that John had an incredibly high view of God. He trusted God and his plan and his sovereignty to do what God was going to do. He realized that if someone came along after him who had greater gifts and abilities and talents, then that person had received those gifts and those abilities and those talents from God himself. God is the one who had given those things to that person, whoever it would have been. And he shouldn't be upset that God had blessed that person in that way. He should rejoice and be thankful that God had poured out his blessings upon that person in that way. And he even rebukes his disciples along these lines and says in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. He's like, this shouldn't come as a surprise to you. I told you all along, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now, this may hurt a little bit, but we need to ask these questions. and we need to be very honest in our answers before the Lord as we grapple with these questions. Do you rejoice and celebrate the successes of those who are around you? Do we rejoice and celebrate when others do well? Do we acknowledge that their gifts and their abilities and their talents and their success was given to them by God himself? Because God did bless that person in that way. But here's a really hard, a really personal portion of this. When the time comes that that someone begins to take over an area that we've invested in or that we've given our lives to or, or they surpass us through awards or accolades or, or they take our office or whatever the case may be. That's not a, a, a pleasant feeling for us all the time. But you know what God calls us to in that situation? Even if this is where the real, it's one thing when someone that, that, that you know and you love and you cherish and, and that they begin to do that, it's still a hard thing to hand over that, that leadership and those reins at that time. But what if the person who's doing that, who's eclipsing and who's, who's succeeding ahead of you, did it through ungodly, unethical, or immoral means? What are we going to do in that situation? We need to understand that God still calls us to maintain a Christ like spirit and attitude even in those situations. Doesn't mean we may not take, have to take some kind of recourse or action, but we maintain a, a godly attitude and spirit about ourselves in that time. Because here's the thing, God will hold you accountable for you and your actions and your responses to that person and to that situation. John the Baptist had a right attitude and he taught that attitude to his disciples so we need to ask, how's our attitude when this time, when the season in our life comes, when it has already come, or even if we're in the midst of it. But a second thing that we learn from John the Baptist example is that we need to fulfill the right role. We need to fulfill the right role. John helped his disciples understand his role by describing himself as the bridegroom. In verse 29, he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So the guy's getting married. The bride comes, the one that the bride is giving herself to, the man that's there, he is the bridegroom. What's everyone else? Not the bridegroom, okay? You're not the special guy. The special guy receives a special woman on this day. And if you're not the special guy, you're not the special guy. And John says, that's what he says. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You see, this friend of the bridegroom is kind of what we term the best man today. And the best man today, he holds the ring and he's with his buddy. He may do a toast at a rehearsal, something like that. But in ancient times, the friend of the bridegroom was kind of like the wedding coordinator. This guy prepared things. He did a lot of the details for the planning of the ceremony and the food and the celebration that would go on. He did a lot of things in getting ready for the actual wedding for his friend, whom he loved and cared for and wanted to, to see, you know, have a great, wonderful day. But the greatest joy for the friend of the bridegroom came and his, his primary responsibility on the day of the wedding was standing guard over the bride to watch over and to protect her, uh, but also just to make sure she got where she needed to be and that she arrived there safely, that no one bothered her and distracted her from getting ready to present herself to uh, the bridegroom on that day. That was his job to, to be that, that, that very close personal assistant to the bride and his friend trusted him with that responsibility. And his greatest joy, his greatest joy came when the groom finally walked to the point and said, Hey, we're ready. Bring her on in. Because he knew that all his hard work had paid off. Everything was ready for the ceremony, for all the festivities. All that stuff is in order. No more work to be done there. Now it's time for him to escort the bride to go and be with the bridegroom on this very special day. John said, that's who I am. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And it is now my joy to present the bride, the church, to her bridegroom. And he says, I rejoice and I celebrate that I have that opportunity. You see, John didn't see Jesus' rise in popularity as a threat to his ministry. He saw it as a fulfillment to his ministry. So this is what I came to do. That this isn't taking away anything. This is fulfilling. This is what God has called me to do. And you notice the result. You notice the difference in responses between John and his disciples, his disciples, man, they got all worked up and they got jealous and envious of Jesus. And they're frustrated at this whole situation. And isn't that a common reaction to people? And we, and we get jealous and we get envious and, and, and we, get, we, get, uh, we get hurt when people begin to take away our, our glory or our sales or, or whatever it is that we have. You know, we don't like it when people begin to, to look and focus on someone else when we've been the center of attention. And what's even worse is that so often we don't just internalize and go, man, this doesn't feel good, but people get antagonistic, they get angry they get bitter, they get resentful and they begin to, to tear and to undermine, to try and tear down the other person so they can build themselves up. You ever seen that happen? It's not a pretty sight and it happens at all levels. You know, siblings, we see siblings in that rivalry and with some some horror stories of how siblings and the rivalry and the parents maybe didn't handle that well or, or just that, that the kids took and the parents are trying to handle it well but they didn't respond and react well uh, in those situations Much tension. We've seen that uh, in in the workplace. We see it in so many levels that we see uh, people begin to undermine and get antagonistic toward others. But when we grow angry and resentful and bitter about these things, who suffers the most? We suffer the most. We're the one, uh, someone this weekend, and I heard the quote before that said, you know, when we have this anger and this resentment and this unforgiveness in our heart and this antagonism towards someone. It's like us drinking a, a glass of poison and waiting for the other person to die. I mean, he it, it does terrible things within us and they just kind of live their life and, and they go on. But you know what the Bible says about th- this pride that we have? And that's what this is. This is pride. We don't want to lose this and we want to maintain it. And so we, we, we try and protect our territory. You know what the Bible says about pride? The Bible says that God gives grace to the humble. That is those who are humble, those who say, I can't do it on my own. Lord, Lord I need you. This is well beyond what, what I'm able to do. That when we humble ourselves, the Bible says that God gives grace to the humble. He gives them what they need to accomplish the task and the purpose and the things that he sets before them because they're dependent upon him. But you know what the next part of that verse says some of you do, God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. God opposes those who have pride in their heart and pride in themselves. And that's that's an active uh, verb, meaning that God comes against. He, He opposes and works against those who have pride in themselves and their accomplishments and what they do. Now the Bible says, fathers do not exasperate your children. And I think that means for more than 45 minutes each day. And so I, I try, to, try to limit myself. And, and we, I, I, I'm at my kids quite often. We, we have fun and I kind of pick at them a little bit. Well, one day uh, they, they'd been out somewhere and they were coming back in. I don't know what they were doing, but I, I got in the door. I heard they were coming and I was in the house and I walked up to the door and I put my foot right there just behind the door while it was closed. And I think it was Caleb. And Caleb kind of goes, it won't open. And I think Shelly, the thing was, well, turn, use the key. He's like, I did use the key. It's unlocked. She's like, well, turn the knob harder. And so there's this dialogue. And he's just pushing with all of his might. And I'm just standing there, you know, nothing in the world going on because he, he's not moving that, uh, that door with my foot. So finally, I, I kind of get ready. I'm like, okay, here it is. And so I move my foot real fast. And he comes tumbling in. And I almost caught him before he hit the floor. No, I did. I, I, I caught him. I'm just kidding. Ruth was, are oh, you so bad to him. I did. I, I, I caught him Just just messing around. But that, that's the picture in my mind of God opposing the proud. When we come in our strengths and our abilities and what we can do, God's like, oh yeah, you think so? See what you can do now, buddy. Go ahead, knock yourself out, all right? Until we get to, Lord, I can't do it. Oh, good. You're humble. You're dependent upon me. Here, here's grace to accomplish what I'm setting before you. See, John had this humility about him. And do you know what this brought? This surrender to Christ, this humility, this dependence, it brought freedom in John's life. He said, I don't have to be like Jesus. There's only one Jesus. I just need to be John the Baptist. There was security for him in knowing that he was the friend of the bridegroom. And there was joy uh, for, for John that he surrendered to Christ, that there was joy that he was getting to present the bride to her bridegroom. William Carey, the the father of modern missions, on his deathbed said to a friend who was nearby, When I'm gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's savior. I desire that Christ alone be magnified. God calls each of us to play a part, to play a role in making disciples and spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. That means across the street and around the world, God gives us a part and calls us to do our part, fulfill our role in that mission. And if we're faithful in that task and if we're dependent upon God to help us accomplish that task, then God receives the glory. And his plans and his purposes will continue for generations upon generations after we're gone. Not because of what we've done, but because what God has done in us and through us. We're reading the story of John the Baptist today. Centuries later, because of his humility and his surrender to Christ. And it was there because of John's focus. He had a right focus. This is my favorite verse in the entire Bible. It's what I call my life verse. I've got it embossed here on the front cover of my Bible. John chapter three, verse 30. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist, the greatest man to have ever been born according to Jesus, stated that his desire was to be nothing. He wanted less of John the Baptist and more of Jesus in his life. And John doesn't give this as a suggestion or an idea. He, he says it's a necessity. He says, he must, he must increase, but I must decrease. Well, why did John have this focus on Jesus? Because he knew who Jesus was. He knew what Jesus was about, what Jesus had come to do. John is about to fade from the scene. We don't see much more about John as we read through the rest of, his, of John's gospel here. But in his last testimony to his disciples and to all of us who would read his last testimony, he tells them and he tells us, follow Jesus because he is the right savior. He is the one who has come to deliver you and to save you and to help you become a child of God. He's, he tells us that Jesus had a heavenly origin. tells us that he had a heavenly origin. In verse 31, it says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly ways. Now, who do you think he's talking about there? He's talking about himself. Who comes from the earth, speaks in earthly ways. John says, that's me. I'm from the earth. I speak in earthly ways. But he says, he who comes from heaven is above all So he tells us that Jesus has a heavenly origin. He tells us that Jesus reveals truth. The next verse, verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Setting a seal is what someone did, particularly a leader, a government official, oftentimes in ancient times would have a, a signet ring and they would put hot wax on an envelope or on something that they had written and that person would take their ring and they would put it in that hot wax as a way of saying, this is from me. I have signed off and I verify this is from me. It's right, it's true, it's good. You need to to heed what's in here. So when we, uh, we give ourselves to, when, when we receive this truth and we set a seal on it, we're saying that what God has said through Jesus is true, that, that we believe in him and can receive the gift of eternal life. And so that seal is set as we affirm God's truthfulness through Jesus. Third, John says that Jesus has and shares the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure he gives the spirit without measure the holy spirit dwells within us to guide us and direct us uh, once we place our faith in christ john also states that jesus has god's authority look in verse 35 the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. So he has the authority to be able to speak on God's behalf and give us instruction in our lives. But finally, John says that, that we should believe in Jesus because he offers eternal life. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Sooner or later, our lives will be eclipsed. Someone will pass us by, they will outdo us, they will outsmart us, they will outperform us, they will outachieve us. Maybe it's already happened. Maybe it's happening right now. But if not, understand that it will happen at some point in the future in each of our lives. The questions then are, how will we react? How are we reacting? How did we react when that time came? You know, I think and pray about this issue, church, a whole lot. Because I have seen transitions in leadership go poorly in a lot of areas, in a lot of ways, including churches. And one of my regular prayers is that God will give me a spirit of encouragement and helpfulness uh, to the next generation uh, as I'm trying to help prepare them even now to, to lead and to serve God and to be faithful in the church and in, the, and in the, every aspect of their lives to Christ. But as that time comes when, when God may move me out of ministry and it's time to hand over reins of leadership, I, I pray that God will help me do what he would have me to do, to follow the example of John the Baptist when that time comes because I've seen good examples of this and I have seen horrible examples of this take place in the life and the work of a church. And truthfully, I kind of swing from two extremes on how I you know, think I may react when that time comes. On, on the one hand, I told Shelly sometimes, I'm like, man, the Lord ever you know, opens up the door and we're able to retire and not be in local church ministry. I don't think I can attend a church anywhere because I know that nothing will be good enough for me. You know, I mean, I just, I'm always looking and thinking and analyzing, why'd they do that? Well, that's like, it's just better for me to not go, you know, because nothing probably will will, will fit my taste or or how I would have done it at that point. But there are other days when I vow that I'm going to be sandpaper to the soul of some young pastor. That it is going to be my ministry at that point to help develop character and godliness in this young man. I'm going to sit and scowl when he's preaching, not laughing at any of his jokes, just sit there. I'm going to send him an anonymous note every day about when well, his grass gets you on, you got to mow that lawn at your house, son. That's a horrible witness in the community. I just think, I, I, I want to I be on committee so I can say no to every idea he has, just to develop godliness and, and patience in his life. Yes, Lord, this is the ministry you've called me to. Now, I, I'm, I'm just messing with you. And I told you, I swing through the, these, these extremes on different days. But I do pray, church, I pray so often that God will give me the privilege of being the biggest cheerleader, the biggest supporter and investor in the next generation of leaders that God raises up in the church that I possibly can be man, I want to build those guys up. I want to love on them. I want to encourage them. I want to be a resource for them in every way possible. And, you know, part of that for me is I I don't want to wait until that time comes. I'm trying to make that investment now and begin developing and and helping encourage and support young leaders now. And I think, why wouldn't I want to do that? It is mind-boggling for me to think about investing, you know, 30, 40 years of my life and my ministry in the work of a local church and then not want to see it do well. Why would I want to make that investment and then not want to see it do well when I'm gone? I want to see it do well. I want to see it grow and flourish and be faithful uh, to the call that God places upon its life long after I'm gone. I want to see it be faithful to the Great Commission until Jesus returns. You know, we gotta ask a question. And the question is this, do I want to see, and then you fill in the blank and this is a blank for you. Do I want to see blank do well after I'm gone? Do you wanna see your family do well after you're gone? If so, what does that mean for you today? What investment do you need to make today so that it will do well when you're gone? Do you wanna see your business do well after you're gone? Do you wanna see your church do well after you're gone? We have got to ask these questions and not think about what happens then, but what are we doing now? That's the key thing. What are we doing now? What investments are we making so that those things will do well and not well by worldly standards, but well according to what God has in store for those things. And we make that investment for the future by being faithful to God today, just as John the Baptist was, with the right attitude, with the right focus, doing the right role as God has called us to right now. John MacArthur had a great quote this week as I was studying. He said, don't measure success by how many people follow the minister or the ministry. You could put that in there. But how many people follow Christ through the minister or the ministry? It's a great question. We need to recognize that nothing you and I and accomplish apart from God. You and I will accomplish nothing apart from what God allows us to accomplish. It's all about God, what, what God does in us and God does through us. You see, when we have a right attitude, then we'll fulfill the right role. And we'll do that with joy and with freedom and security as John the Baptist did. And there is, There is great joy in being the you that God has created you to be and doing what God has called you to do. I hope you recognize and understand this, that there is only one you. God created no one else in this world of six billion people just like you. And you know what else that means? There is no one else in this world of six billion people who can be a better you than you can. Only you can fulfill the role and the call and the purpose that God designed and created you and placed you on this planet to accomplish. And as you live your life in surrender to him, God will work out that plan. God will work out those purposes. He will accomplish his will through your life. So be who God has created you to be as you walk in him with his spirit leading and guiding and directing you all the days of your life. And I think we do that day in and day out by having the same attitude as John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. More of Jesus, less of me. Is that your prayer? Is that your pattern of life, your pattern of living, more of Jesus every day in your life, less of you in your life. So we come to our time of invitation, I invite you today to experience this new life in Christ, to experience a relationship with the Savior that John the Baptist described, who will give you his spirit, who will cleanse you of your sins, who will make you right with God and help you become a child of God. Our pastors are available, and we would love for you today to become a new creation, a new creature, the Bible says, in Jesus Christ. So if you, you need, would need to place your faith and your trust in Christ today we invite you in our time of invitation but maybe some of you want to come and spend some time at the altar or just in your seat to say Lord I've not handled this well I've not been handling this well Lord I want to be making an investment in your kingdom for future generations Lord I know that I need to do that now in my family in my workplace in whatever relationships I'm in Lord help me be a person who's focused and who gives myself today to these things so that you can do your work in and through these situations for generations to come. Lord, help me decrease that you might increase in my life. Let's make that our prayer today.